0: Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is William Pomeranz, and I'm Deputy Director of the Kennan Institute, and we are glad to have you here today for our discussion on the evolution of Putinism, constitutional change, and regime regime stability. Uh, we hope today's event will be run as a discussion. Uh, we will have an initial discussion with our panelists, and then after uh, this is the end of the discussion, we will open it up for uh, questions and answers from our uh, viewers. Um, Just a little background on today's event. All of our panelists are commenting on articles for the upcoming issue of Russian politics. Um, I'd like to extend my thanks to Wilson Fellow Regina Smith, uh, who helped organize the the, uh, volume and served as co-editor of the volume. Uh, And also great thanks to Cameron Ross, the editor of Russian politics, uh, the journal. Uh, You can find more information about all the speakers, including bios of of the panelists, uh, articles and titles and abstracts on the website for today's event. Uh, Before I get started, I just want to mention that you can follow and stay up to date with the Kennan Institute uh, through our blogs, The Russia File and the the Focus Ukraine blog. Uh, A reminder for the audience, if you have questions, uh, for our guests, you can submit them via email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at kenaninstitute, Institute, or on our Facebook page. Please uh, include your name and affiliation when sending questions. Um, as I said, we're going to start by having a discussion amongst all of our panelists, and then throw it open to Q&A. And in order to start the conversation, I'm going to throw out an opening question. And the question is... Uh, After doing this research, does this new constitution codify change or continuity in the system for the future? That is, do you see the process of institutional change, much ado about nothing, or the groundwork for a new new stability strategy? So we're going to throw that question out to all our panelists, and we're going to start with uh, Sarah Soki. Sarah, the floor is yours.
1: Great, thank you. Uh, so I thought about this question, uh, and I think that the, the answer is definitely that the constitutional changes are not much ado about nothing. Um, it's very certainly an attempt at the groundwork for a new stability strategy, and we'll see if it works or not uh, is is the real question. And so um, I think there's this assumption often that, that Putin has a stronger grip on power than he may actually have. There's a book that's coming out, I think, next month by Timothy Fry. Um, called Weak Strongman about how there are vulnerabilities and serious vulnerabilities in Putin's rule in Russia and his popularity and the regime's stability. The difficulty is, of course, that we'll know things are going to change when they change. It's very difficult to predict the future. But I think with these constitutional changes, there's a few realistic scenarios that we can think about. Um, One is that um, these constitutional changes, we have to remember, and this is what Regina Smith and I write about, we have to remember there's these opposing forces of continuity and change so The constitutional changes are not much ado about nothing, but they're also not a brand new strategy. Right. So uh, there, there is this comment. There's this uh, strategy that they've relied on before That they're relying on again, which may in one realistic scenario, maintain a delicate balance. That essentially would mean strengthening Putin's regime and maybe strengthening the popularity and stability of United Russia. And the evidence for that is that the strategy has worked largely up to this point. So they promise a lot of things, they deliver on some of them, and what Regina Smith and I write about is that they, they promise things in the area of social policy, and we, we write about the cases of pensions and housing reform in particular. Pensions, there's a lot of constitutional promises that they make, very explicit ones, Housing, they don't mention in the constitutional amendments, but they've had the same strategy of promising a lot, delivering on some of it with varying success in different places. And so that's one realistic scenario as they maintain the delicate balance. Um, another realistic scenario is that the constitutional amendments are mostly important for strengthening elites and it allows them to handle or suppress any potential objections to continuing Stagnating conditions uh, in healthcare and education and living standards and that kind of thing, and that would be a very that's a different uh, scenario. That means that they're not um, providing things people want, but they're strengthening the elites. And of course, one possibility is that the constitutional changes are not enough to bolster uh, Putin's survival, the survival of United Russia, and it's very hard to predict this uh, ahead of time. I, I would think that. It it doesn't seem likely that the regime is crumbling right this moment, even with the protest about Navalny um, very recently, but certainly we know that the constitutional amendments are not much to do about nothing. Um, And we see in them very much these opposing forces of continuity and change. They're using old strategies, but also trying to bolster themselves up moving forward. Um, And in the spirit of keeping things moving, I'll go ahead and stop there uh, and let someone else jump in.
0: Thank you very much, Sarah. I immediately violated the first rule because I did not even give you a one sentence uh, bio. Uh, Sarah is an associate professor in political science at the University of Colorado in Boulder. So uh, you talked about elites and how they're reacting to the um, constitutional amendments. Uh, Paul Goode also talks about the elites and elites uh, transformation and support of the regime. Uh, so I'm turning the, turn the question over to Paul. Uh, he is the Macmillan Chair of Russian Studies at the Institute of European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at Carleton University. Paul, floor is yours.
2: Thanks. I, I, I agree in large measure. I think that on the one hand, um, you know, these are not meaningless changes, but I also don't think it's really a strategy, much less a strategy for stability. Um, and I can kind of elaborate on both of those, but I think what often gets lost in the discussion about the constitutional amendments because we really tend to focus on sort of the distribution of power is that so much of the debate, both in terms of elite dynamics and in terms of the campaign to mobilize the nationwide vote, all that basically avoided the most substantive aspects of the reforms. For the most part, the public and the elite debate focused on patriotism. It focused on social issues, things like pensions, right? Um, and this was a Herculean effort to, to draft to promote, to vote. And I think all this ultimately shows, first of all, that you know, patriotic legitimation is something that has been crucial to Putin's regime and it remains crucial. Um, and this is very much an, an exemplification of that. The fact that you had all these public debates and this public campaign that pointedly avoiding dis, avoided discussing political and institutional changes, I think is really interesting and significant in and of itself. Um, And everything focused more on social and patriotic issues. When Putin initially rolled out these proposals for constitutional reforms and has addressed parliament back in January last year, he then created a working group of 50, you know, uh, 50 members, including politicians, civil society actors, as well as professional athletes and celebrities. um, And, you know, really didn't give them much in the way of walking orders. Basically said, you know, these reforms should strengthen Russia as a presidential republic. Um, And then the vast majority of the proposals had to do with social and patriotic themes, which had very little to do with making Russia a stronger uh, presidential republic. And some of these really became sort of dominant, especially in the working group discussions, you know, like uh, Alexei Pushkov warning about alternative histories about the Second World War. And, you know, this emerging dialogue of Europe is being saved by Uncle Obama, Um, things that have absolutely nothing to do uh, with uh, uh, the constitutional distribution of powers. Uh, my own personal favorite was when the Olympic athlete, Elena Isimbayeva, quipped that she was grateful for being included in the working group because she'd never read the constitution before. So this gave her an excuse to do so. Um, but the final version, right, of the legislation that was ultimately adopted by the parliament in March included nearly all of the social welfare and patriotic amendments, amendments that were discussed. But when it came then to mobilizing the popular vote, almost none of the actual institutional changes were discussed. And so we saw, for instance, a nationwide billboard campaign that had lots of kids carrying flowers, giving them to you know, their grandparents for their participation in the Second World War. Um, we had social media uh, campaigns that included... Um, you know, clips put together by Prigozhin's federal news agency, having, for instance, a child criticizing his mother for not voting for the amendments because corrupt ministers would remain in power forever and he would never have a chance to be a minister himself. Um, And so, you know, I think that this was pretty significant insofar as you also had, according to Levada polls, about three quarters of the population, you know, supported the the amendments in principle, but only about 14% actually knew any of the amendments to begin with, knew what they contained. So there was a, an attempt to mobilize. It was an apolitical mobilization, and it's something that has been at the core of Putin's regime, I would say, at least since sort the shift into patriotic legitimation since 2012, 2014. Now, that brings me to stability, which is that I think that on the one hand, this is you know not meaningless. On the other hand, it's not a strategy. It's replicating or reproducing the regime as a going concern. And I think that now that patriotism and social issues have been written into the constitution, it actually limits the regime's ability to adapt, right? It no longer has the luxury of tailoring its legitimating claims to circumstances, to changing circumstances as it did in years past, right? Instead, it's now constitutionally bound to those patriotic and social welfare proposals that secured elite compliance and mass validation. Um, And that's going to make it, I think, potentially difficult Going forward, um, without changing, you know, the practical structures that contribute to, you know, what our colleague Vladimir Gelman refers to as bad governance. So, with that, I'll, I'll hand it back to
0: the floor. Regina, you wanted to jump in.
3: I just wanted to jump in from the perspective of having read all the papers and underscore that these papers address, uh, as Paul just signaled all four stages of this process of constitutional change from talking about this very performative uh, council that wrote that collected public input um, and uh, defined the changes, the promotion, the vote, and finally the change of the laws subsequent to the Constitution to make things uh, congruent or consistent. so so these papers as a set, look at all of those uh, different steps, I think, and I think it's important to understand the conversation.
0: Sarah, you wanted to jump in as well.
3: Oh, just
1: very quickly. Um, So I would push back on, I do think this is a strategy, actually. I I would disagree about this. Um, And I think it's a strategy that's been used before in that, and as Paul was talking about, sort of building patriotism, Um, certainly uh, is crucial for Putin's support, but isn't itself a strategy, but the policy strategy. And it's interesting because these constitutional promises, they had constitutional promises about pensions previously, and now there's more constitutional promises. And I, I think it seems kind of funny from an outside perspective that they would include in a constitutional amendment, a promise that implies things like an annual increase in pensions or indexation, which which may or may not be an actual increase, but implies an annual increase um, in pensions. And so that's new in that particular promise had not been made as such, but there had been previously, they were constitutionally bound to social policy promises before. These are highly non-credible. I don't know how you would enforce this as it's unconstitutional, you didn't pass this policy, But it does seem to send this very strong signal. And it seems important that if they omitted this, maybe people would raise an eyebrow. Perhaps they just they can't back off from doing this kind of social policy promise in the Constitution now. But again, we see that opposing forces of continuing change. This isn't totally unlike what they've done before, but it is kind of a new formulation of the same old strategy. But I'll stop there.
4: Thank you very much, Will, and thanks, Regina, for leading this project. I think it's, it's, uh, in a sense, good that we haven't really focused on Putin. I think more broadly, uh, too much analysis on Russia focuses on Putin, but in this instance, I think it's criminal that we haven't said one of the major things that was achieved by these constitutional changes was allowing Putin to run again in 2024 and possibly stay in power until he's 83 in 2036. I'm not saying that the other features of constitutional change are important definitely not and those papers make that very clear but we shouldn't lose sight of the centrality of that amendment made by Valentina Tereshkova the first woman in space uh, in in that set piece of political theatre in the state Duma when Putin came down after her proposal into the body and said I will reluctantly if the constitutional court allows me I will um, accept this amendment that will allow me to stay in power and he admitted after the fact that the core logic behind that was to stop the elite from focusing on the question of succession. So I think we shouldn't lose sight of the centrality of that amendment allowing Putin to remain in power um, for two more presidential terms and the fact that that was motivated uh, in terms of elite management. Um, But now shifting to what uh, Nikolai and I focus on in our paper, and if Will you want us to touch on whether we should be focusing on continuity or change, we can compare what Putin said on the 15th of January, 2020, in his address to the Federal Assembly. And he said, these are very, I'm quoting now, these are very serious changes in the political system that would increase the role and significance of the country's parliament, the role and significance of the state's Duma. What Nikolai and I make clear in our paper is that that promise was uh, a hollow promise. It was not fulfilled. And we highlight that by looking at the implementation process itself. So. Putin is saying at the beginning of 2020, Parliament's going to have an increased role, then that suggests that during the implementation process that we focus on, parliament would have a more significant role. It doesn't. It had even less of a role to play than it usually does in lawmaking. And we saw complaints not only of opposition parties, but also of more loyal voices within the State Duma saying, hang on, Putin promised us more influence. And yet in order to implement these very constitutional changes, we're playing a very peripheral role. So that's one of the major points that we make in our paper. And the other point that we try and make is that rather than focusing on constitutional reform in itself, we have to situate it within these other changes that are happening at the same time that Nikolai and I portray as a broader attempt at regime transformation, even if it's transformation to uh, uh, for the current political leadership to remain in power. And so we're not seeing this uh, uh, new system entirely. It's just in order to retain uh, power. And those other areas include things like changes to the State Council, the creation of new bodies that will uh, uh, perform um, in a sense, like quasi-government. So we see the way that decision-making is taking place. Putin, it seems, is trying to create these new centers of power um, that won't challenge him, but that will also balance each other. So I've mentioned the State Council. We can also look at uh, VEB-RF, uh, 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 which is the Institute of um, Development that's bringing together these new bodies, as well as a commission under Dmitry Kovac, that's focusing on international policy. And let me finish by making the point that we think that these changes are uh, baking in flexibility for the future. So the State Council uh, in its current form is not a place for Putin to be able to go to step away from the presidency and retain control of the country. But there is the potential for something like that to happen in the future. So it's both to bake in that flexibility for the future, as well as to deal with elite management, which um, was increasingly a problem and remains a problem for late stage Putinism. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Ben. Uh, Again, I didn't uh, introduce Ben, but he is an assistant professor at University College London, the School of Slavonic and East European Studies. Uh, You raised the issue of uh, Putin and uh, the uh, nullification amendment and so forth. And I want to turn it to Fabian, uh, who talked about the idea that after these constitutional amendments, it's a much more personal constitution. Uh, Fabian, would you kind of expand on that idea that this, the constitutional reforms involve the personalization of the Russian legal uh, political system? Well, um,
5: thanks a lot. Um, actually. Um, I'd like to pick up uh, a few ideas that uh, Sarah mentioned, and uh, two of them um, she brought up uh, uh, Tim's uh, basically idea of a uh, of weak strongman. I, I tried to frame it a bit differently in my paper. Basically, I frame it as, as a paradox of governance. Basically, if you look at the 1993 constitution, you have what many call a super presidentialist contribution, maybe extremely strong presidency compared to other countries and what i argue is basically, if you look at the changes that occurred uh, have been occurring sort of in the last 20 30 years that the presidency has been accumulating even more powers by federal law by presidential decrees and by decisions of the of the constitutional court but what the paradox is actually is that and the, the constitutional changes they actually increase presidential power even more so that's sort of one of the or finding that that, that I actually make, and I think it's worth mentioning, but uh, the the paradox is that this kind of uh, very strong formal institutional power does not um, always increase uh, capacity. That very much ties in with what Vladimir does in his paper, what what he calls bad governance, was actually um, a big implementation capacity. We see it. With the implementation of the May Decrees, the 2012 uh, May Decrees, we see with the national projects and so on. We, so we see a fairly weak implementation of, of strategic goals, if you will, in, in socio-economic uh, um, governance. And uh, the second point I really like what, uh, what Sarah made is um, by basically these opposing forces of continuity and, and change. And sort of my paper is about the presidency as such, and I really think it makes it makes sense to keep the president as a person and the presidency as an institution. I think it really still makes sense to to keep it a part. Um But I, even though know, as as Ben mentioned, the zeroing uh, amendment of give, giving actually Putin the opportunity to run again in twenty twenty four is kind of this amendment of the. The constitutional reform maybe it's uh, it's not all about the about the future the amendment when you specifically look at the presidency or the executive so i would argue that we need to kind of distinguish these three levels what, what these amendments with regard to the presidency are actually about and, and some are about the past aligning the constitutional text with um sub-constitutional presidential powers the the, the president had been accumulating before um, um, achieving some convergence, uh, reducing incoherence and discrepancy in actually the legal framework. And uh, I think the State Council is a good example. Many people have interpreted this as being uh, as a, this is about the future as a potential place where actually Putin can go and actually step down from the presidency. But I would actually argue this is rather about the past aligning uh, previous practices, previous uh, um, of the president that he actually had in the uh, by federal police and so on, and before just aligning it with, uh, with the practice, the traditional text with, uh, with the practice present. Um, um, and I will come to to the end uh, right now. As, as um, Ben mentioned, it's about the present because it's about elite coordination, signaling what it's uh, um, what basically the intention is, giving as many options as uh, um, as possible, without actually making clear what the actually future
0: scenario is. I think these are
5: to, like, uh...
0: Thank you, Fabian. And a reminder for those who are listening uh, we will get to a QA. So if you have a question, you can submit them via email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter at kenaninstitutes, or on our Facebook page. Um, Yvonne, you talked about the personalization of power as well. So to what extent do you find uh, that the court reforms, especially the reforms about the constitutional court, enhances Putin's power uh, and basically subordinates the high
6: court to Putin's um, discretion and and rule. Uh, Yes, thank you, William. Well, in, in my work, I focus on the constitutional court and the implications of the new amendments for the constitutional court more specifically. Uh, So I kind of have this narrower focus than just, you know, looking at uh, the the general context um, of what's going on with the constitutions, uh, with with the constitution, sorry, Uh, but uh, having this narrower focus allows me to actually see that there are, and I think that's useful for our discussion, to see that there are basically three important sources of uh, innovation uh, from which the amendments stem. Uh, The first of these sources, and the one that I cover the most in my paper, is actually the fact that um, before these amendments, uh, Vladimir Putin actually had a very strong aversion to amending the Constitution. So for for a very long time, for two decades, he was not changing anything. Well, except for a number of regions and the uh, and the term limits for the legislature and the president at some point, but generally the constitution was very stable. Uh, and, and given that this window was basically closed all of the time, uh, and given that the constitution actually is quite concrete in its provisions, uh, th- there accumulated a huge backlog of stuff that people wanted to amend in the constitution. Uh, and. In particular, in the case of the Russian Constitutional Court, lots of things were done using the secondary legislation. So the Constitutional Court Act has been amended extensively during the the previous decades. Uh, And then when, for some reason, Vladimir Putin said, OK, and now we amend the Constitution, all of this this backlog was actually, it, it basically rushed in, and all of these things were brought in. And I think lots of things related to social provisions and to um, all of these more conservative new uh, things brought into the constitution, they actually come from there, from all of these, um, from from this pile of ideas that people accumulated. Um, That's one source. And of course, this source looks more or less like continuity. It's more or less a, you know, a source of continuity in these amendments. And, And really, when I look at the amendments related to the constitutional court, many of them has already been enacted with the secondary legislation. But then there is the second source, which uh, which Ben has already mentioned, the fact that the, the reason the window was opened was because Vladimir Putin wanted to get reelected again in 2024, or at least to have such, such an opportunity. Um, and to this one, and that's the one related to personalism, to this one, uh, a number of other amendments are linked Because if Vladimir Putin gets reelected, then he has to start thinking about what the political system will look like after 2024 and in 2024. And for instance, uh, one important amendment related to the Constitutional Court is that now the president can effectively dismiss individual justices of the court, which was not the case previously. But that way, he secures a much stronger um, control over the court previously it was done through the chairman, now the president can actually fire any of the justices if they do something wrong. And that, of course, makes the situation much more stable for him in 2024, given that, you know, that's a point of instability. And then there is the third source of uh, amendments, just the ideas that Vladimir Putin himself might have had related to the to what the constitution would look like. And I think these amendments are mostly those which strengthen him in terms of making Russia even more presidential. Like for instance, um, strengthening his control over the regional legislatures. It's not like he really needs it. But, but probably he feels more comfortable having them. That's why they are introduced. At least that's how I see picture, You know, based off um, of what I have researched about the Constitutional Court. Um, I'll, I'll just leave it there, thank you. Ben, do you have a question or comment?
0: No, okay, that was for my, it was the mic, okay. Um, so the question has been raised about uh, the question of governance and the issue of the State Council. So I I want to kind of uh, drill down into the State Council um, because it was initially, as Ben and others have commented, commented, uh, the place where Vladimir Putin was going to land, essentially, uh, to kind of exert control indirectly. Um, And the State Council has now morphed into really a Top-down power vertical system, uh, whereby uh, something called has introduced the unified system of public power, and has swept up other previously independent institutions such as local self-government. So, to what extent is the new uh, unified system of public power and the state council supplementing Vladimir Putin's power, or does did Putin already have the ability? to coordinate and to discuss issues top down from the center to the regions? And to what extent is it kind of just duplicative of other powers that the presidential administration has uh, and the president had under the existing Constitution? So I'll throw that question out there to anyone who wants to respond. The the, the future of the, the state council and the importance of the State Council. Nikolai.
7: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Will. Uh, I think this is very interesting point because at the beginning, uh, even before Putin did announce uh, the constitutional reform, there were a lot of speculations saying that it should be the State Council uh, to be the body allowing Putin to stay in power after 2024. Uh, When finally the law on the State Council uh, was adopted, it uh, looks uh, now like the State Council itself is almost the same body of power as it used to be after 2018 revision of the previous one. But what is new is the State Council Presidium, which is much bigger, which is much better organized. But I think it's too early to speculate about the importance of this body because it's still at the stage of formation so we do not know how big and how well financed the apparatus of uh, the state council will be but in general in my view it looks like extension of the presidential staff at the expense by the way of the government and of regional governments rather than anything else so if there are two general uh Trends which we can notice in all these uh, changes. One is weakening of all other institutions and another one is strengthening of the so-called big president, being uh, uh, him president himself and all bodies of power directly controlled by him. The state council, uh, well, is a good piece of mosaics which uh, should increase uh, powers of the president, but uh, we can only speculate now how how exactly it it will happen.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Thank you. Thank Thank you, uh, Nikolai. Why don't we go to Vladimir Gelman then and talk about the changing of the structure of governance um, and whether it can actually lead to improvement in light of the changes in terms of the Constitutional Court the State Council uh, and center region regional relations
8: yeah uh, uh, actually uh, I uh, uh, characterized uh, uh, Russia's uh, political uh, economic order as uh, uh, an instance of uh, bad governance uh, the uh, uh, system aimed uh, at uh, uh, rent seeking as a major uh, uh, goal and uh, purpose of governing the country. To put it bluntly, uh, it basically means that uh, Russia is governed in order to uh, steal as much as possible and as long as possible. And uh, uh, the problem, uh, is that uh, uh, constitutional changes uh, contributed uh, to extension of time horizon uh, for uh, Russia's rulers and uh, uh, at uh, preventing uh, major uh, unwanted changes, what uh, uh, Putin's uh, spokesman, uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, brilliantly uh, labeled it as cementing Russia. And uh, this uh, cementing uh, mean uh, the uh, uh, continuity of these uh, practices of bad governments, or rather turn of these uh, practices uh, from uh, bad uh, to, uh, to worse uh, because uh, of uh, uh, a combination of. Uh, of incentives uh, for uh, subnational uh, authorities, uh, as well as uh, for uh, nationwide uh, state agencies. And I uh, uh, explored how it works uh, in uh, three different uh, policy areas, uh, strategic uh, development planning, uh, environmental regulations, and digitalization. Uh, there are uh, uh, three uh, different uh, stories, but uh, what uh, is common uh, is uh, uh, that uh, uh, some um, uh, developmental uh, plans are either uh, postponed or adjusted uh, to uh, vested uh, interests of uh, uh, powerful uh, pressure groups. Uh, or uh, captured it uh, by uh, some uh, rent seekers who uh, uh, got uh, very luxury uh, state uh, contacts, uh, contracts and uh, uh, overall I would say that um, uh, this this uh, uh, idea of uh, continuity uh, of political uh, status quo and uh, preventing unwanted uh, political changes by uh, possible extension of uh, Putin's rule up until uh, 2036. Uh, provided a strong uh, signal uh, to uh, all state machinery that, okay, we not aimed at improvements, and this basically means that uh, they um, Uh, uh, more and more uh, pursued uh, uh, the uh, uh, self-interest without uh, uh, any serious leverages uh, of uh implementing uh, uh some uh, developmental goals uh this is uh, uh a more fundamental problem uh, much uh, beyond uh, uh recent constitutional changes uh, but uh, uh my understanding that uh it will uh, be more and more uh, acute uh, over time uh, exactly because uh Uh, uh, there is a a very uh, limited pool of uh, incentives uh, for improving uh, quality of governance uh, in every possible sense. Uh, Thank you.
0: Thank you. Um, I I think I want to bring in Fabian again and talk about, about the capacity of the, um, you talked about the capacity of the government and to introduce reforms. And does this, uh, do these constitutional changes from your perspective, increase capacity or does it kind of limit the ability to respond?
5: Well, it's it's a great question and I think in my paper, I. Only partly speak about the capacity, but I would rather agree with, uh, with Vladimir that it actually um, exacerbates the problems that we previously had with uh, capacity. Because I just repeat the paradox: because if you assume that the presidency gets stronger, you would actually assume that uh, kind of the, the 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 presidency has more capacity to actually implement its own decisions. But what I find in a different paper, for example, if you look at one specific instrument the president has, namely presidential assignments, uh, Paruchina. so I found in the paper that only 50% uh, of these kind of presidential assignments are actually implemented. Those are not implemented or either prolonged over uh, quite a long time. When I think um, that's what we, that's over centralization, what we actually see is uh, personalization and focusing all sorts of powers in the presidency actually gives maybe some more instruments of control. But it does does not really um, give more instruments in terms of actually increasing the capacity to to uh, achieve uh, what uh, the, uh, the 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 main policy domain, for example, that Vladimir uh, talks. That's I think the, the the major issue at hand. I think. Um,
0: Thank. Thanks. Thank you, Fabian. Um, I'm going to jump in here. Uh, Ben has asked me a question, and I'm a contributor. So I'm going to uh, use my prerogative of of actually speaking and uh, talking about one of the things that I find in the Constitution and with these constitutional amendments, uh, especially with the emphasis on social stability and social partnership and all the uh, emphasis on trying to deal with these social problems, is that it undermines the first two chapters of the constitution. So when the constitution was designed and submitted and approved, um, the first two chapters were on the individual rights and the functions of governance. And these were protected because in order to change them, they could only be changed by a, a, a constituent assembly. And of course, there's been no law about how to draft a constituent assembly. Um, But these individual rights were perceived as the supreme value of the Constitution. And admittedly, they weren't always enforced or they weren't enforced to the full capacity. But this was kind of the the innovation of the 1993 Constitution, that it, 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 for the first time, favored the independent rights and the freedoms of Russian citizens. above all else, it was the supreme value. Now the constitution also included references to social rights. So the fact that the amendments emphasize social rights or deal with social rights is is compatible with what was in the original constitution. But I think that one of the consequences of this amendment process and the failure to kind of follow the direct procedure outlined in the constitution was that it undermined the importance of the uh, political rights and civil rights um, by emphasizing the social rights. And therefore, the balance between these two parts of the Constitution has been been changed. And I think that is uh, one of the strategies of Vladimir Putin. Uh, He has emphasized the need for social stability, not only in the run-up of the constitutional changes, but in many of his statements after the Constitution has been approved. So I think that one of the important aspects in terms of governance and the rights going forward is that r- the constitutional amendments returns to the emphasis on social stability and social rights to the detriment of individual rights. Um, Regina, you want to speak about that as well? Or pa- Paul, Paul wants to speak about that as well.
2: Thanks, I, I actually kind of wanted to get back to the broader question about you know, this, the new system of public authority, although I think it touches on this, this last comment as well, um, which is I think to pull back to a broader picture and ask, you know, during the first two decades, of Putin's rule, you know, a common question that a lot of people were asking was, why doesn't Putin just change the constitution to stay in power? Well, okay, so he's done that. All right. So um, if that's the case, then, you know, are we really investing that much into the discussion about the, the implications of formal institutional changes th- at this point? Um, I think the points that Fabian raised, particularly regarding over-centralization and over-personalization are important ones. There are also questions that we were there are also points that we made so those of us who are focusing on regional politics say like 10 years ago were are making with regards to putin's federal reforms and so i wonder you know to what extent can we actually look at these constitutional reforms as a way of starting to establish some of the uh, the the metrics for what we might consider over centralization or over personalization of politics and start to think about then at what point does Politics as a going concern that involves constant institutional, even constitutional changes, ultimately then has a counteracting effect. Insofar as it no longer generates stability, it no longer generates compliance, it no longer generates loyalty, um, but then potentially has a countervailing effect.
0: Regina, you wanted to jump in as well.
3: Uh, I did, and I, and I just um, I wanted to point out two things of um, uh, Vladimir Delman, uh talked about digitization. And I think one thing we could think about is how digitization is a new mode of centralization, right? Because it takes regional officials out of benefits distribution and makes direct linkages to to federal bodies in some cases. And there's been a lot of discussion about this uh, in in sort of online discussions with Putin and so forth. But I also wanted to note that in our paper, I think uh, one of the arguments Sarah and I are making is that in a sense, this was an attempt with social policy to look to have given illusion of less bad governance by defining an agenda, right? So here the, the social changes define not only a political agenda that the state feels like it could maybe manage, although we saw problems last week, but also uh, a political platform for upcoming elections. So while Putin is clearly, you know, Putin staying in power is clearly critical here, I think uh, we're now engaged in a permanent campaign where a lot of this is about electoral management and electoral campaigns and so forth. So I wanted to put that idea on the table for our discussion. And
0: and Sarah wanted to jump in.
3: Well, listening to this
1: conversation, I, I think what stands out to me is that the what's really significant about the constitutional amendments is that it creates this bind for the government with these dual tactics. So um, Yvonne and Ben were both emphasizing the institutionalization of, of power, right? That the formal institutions are getting stronger. And Ben very rightly noted um, that th- this is the central thing is the zeroing amendment and that Putin can run again and can stay in power. And so there's this bind, though, that on the one hand, Putin can stay in power, and there's a formalizing of institutions, so he can stay in power. United Russia can potentially stay in power. And on the second, they want people to want them to stay in power, so they, they offer these things that are unrealistic and not credible that they've always promised, They and they strategically deliver, but it's also important to emphasize, and Regina and I write about this in our paper, that these social policy promises often go to specific groups. We can tell this is a tactic because they seem to think there are core constituencies, right? Even the increasing the retirement age, they opted out whole groups of people. I mean, there's like a list of like a dozen different categories of people not affected by the increase in retirement age. And that's before the constitutional amendment, but they create these selective categories. So it's this bind where you can stay in power, but also you want people to want you to stay in power, But that second part, we're not really sure how well that's going to work, that people wanting you to stay in power.
0: Thanks. Uh, We're going to go to questions soon. A reminder that you can email your questions to Kenan at wilsoncenter.org, via Twitter, at Kenan Institute, or on our Facebook page. Um, Oops. Let's, um, let's go to Vladimir um, and kind of to wrap up the discussion on um, governance. Because, and, and I want to phrase it with the question. Um, obviously, we've talked about uh, centralization of power, personalization of power. Um, and yet, uh, Putin also used these amendments uh, to get some additional security for himself. Uh, he's expanded his right to immunity. Uh, not just in office, but after office. Uh, he's expanded. Uh, he's introduced the right to have ex-presidents uh, join the Federation Council. Uh, f- uh, so to what extent is this simply a perpetuation of bad governments, governance, and to what extent is Vladimir Putin looking over his shoulder uh, at the time that maybe he won't be in power?
8: Um. Well, uh, it's uh, true that uh, Putin uh, greatly expanded his formal and informal powers uh, upon approval of uh, constitutional amendments. But at the same time, as uh, Fabian correctly mentioned, uh, this uh, 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 overexpansion of presidential uh, power uh, not uh, uh, resulted uh, in uh, uh, in improving uh, of uh, institutional uh, performance, and this is a, a paradox uh, which. Uh, maybe uh, uh, label it uh, uh, quite the opposite to a famous uh, statement uh, of uh, uh, Václav Havel uh, many decades ago as power of powerless. This is uh, powerlessness of the powerful. Uh, a very powerful president cannot improve major holes in the system of governance. And please note that uh, the very uh, approval of constitutional changes uh, happens exactly at the midst of a pandemic, which has resulted in uh, excessive mortality of more than three, 300,000 of Russians, quite a bit. Uh, however, it uh, simply uh, doesn't uh, matter for uh, for a political system. I even thought there are some success stories, like. Uh, 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 well, uh, making uh, of a uh, new vaccine, which was a great success story. But at the same time, uh, uh, the president very much concerned about uh, well, uh, selling this uh, vaccine abroad uh, for foreign policy purposes, uh, rather than uh, in uh, providing a, a quick vaccination for uh, his uh, own uh, fellow citizens. And uh, this is uh, exactly the side effect of uh, over-personalization and over-centralization because uh, policy priorities of uh, a president uh, uh, may uh, define uh, the very fate of uh, uh, ordinary uh, citizens. Uh, So it's uh, quite uh, uh, quite the opposite of declarations of uh, social policy and the like outlined uh, by uh, Sarah and uh, uh, Regina. And this is the essence of uh, problems of uh, of uh, uh, bad governance. That's it.
0: Thank you very much, Vladimir. Uh, we're going to go to our questions now. Um, first question is submitted by Susan uh, Sternthal. And she asks, how can Russia change politically if the population, at least according to the Levada Center's recent uh, polls, shows large numbers of people who are apathetic about politics, believe Navalny was not actually poisoned, et cetera. To what extent, then, is Putin relying on the apathy or, or the non-politicization of the Russian people? Uh, and to what extent, really, can, can he continue to rely on that? Uh, Regina, and then I see Paul. Regina, then Paul.
3: So um, I think it's a moment of rapid change in Russia, and uh, there's new. There was a new poll out last week that showed very different attitudes, um, including uh, opposition to Putin returning to office. Significant opposition. Uh, uh, and significant opposition. So attitudes are are very, very quickly changing in this moment. I'm not sure that polls are capturing these changes in attitudes because a national sample, you may not be able to uh, sort of generalize about all pensioners from the set of pensioners included in the the national samples now. They're pretty restrictive. Um, Focus groups show very different kinds of attitudes that uh, are much more uh, reflect social change. So, so I think that um, I don't want to predict a society waking up. But there's a difference between apathy and alienation. When people are apathetic and disengaged, then then they don't come back to life quickly. When people are alienated by the government or t- or understand they have to perform in this sort of model of plebiscitary autocracy that you didn't talk about, then uh, it's, it's quicker for them to re-engage in politics if politics gets interesting and exciting. So I'm less negative about this, this sort of general idea, although not predicting revolution.
0: Paul, you wanted to jump in. Yeah, if I
2: could, just a, a couple of quick points. First, is that you know I, I think it's uh, difficult to disentangle uh, the extent to which the public is apathetic or apolitical from the regime's legitimating discourse. In other words, what is expected of people? What what are people actually believe is their normative obligation or commitment, not just to society but also in the political sphere? Um, patriotism, um, at least the way it's practiced by the Kremlin, as a form of legitimation, is really brittle especially when it's based on the way that the regime monopolizes patriotic discourse. And there is a yawning divide, a yawning gap between uh, official forms of patriotism and the ways that people understand it on an everyday basis. And this is something that I've written about and kind of squeezed into my own paper for the the special issue. Um, So that's one thing. And I, I think that what that means is there is the potential for the situation to change very quickly. And certainly we have seen this in other situations in autocracies where public opinion seems to be very much disengaged and then suddenly becomes rapidly very engaged. Um, Centralization of authority, something that we've been talking about to this point, has an unintended consequence in that it it increases the range of non-political issues that can be inadvertently politicized. Um, And it also facilitates blame attribution. Um, Because the more centralized politics are, the more everybody knows ultimately who's to blame and who's to hold responsible. And so that also potentially facilitates mobilization if it comes to that. And then the last thing I would say is just by way of of comparative context, if we were to think about electoral revolutions that have occurred in the post-Soviet space, um, particularly the color revolutions in the 2000s, and those situations, we're talking about 10% of the public that was mobilized in any given case, right? So we're not talking about the the need for the vast mobilization of society to be to occur in order for there to be change. You know, the vast majority of people may be concentrated on day-to-day survival issues or concerns of family or what have you. That's perfectly normal actually in a comparative perspective. Uh, but I think that that very low threshold for mobilization also tells us something about why the Kremlin is so sensitive about ensuring a legitimating discourse is something which is being constantly replicated at every level of society and government.
0: Thanks. A a follow-up question. um, Follow-up question from uh, Jeff Hahn. Um, Thomas Remington argued that a major goal of Gorbachev's reforms was to create buy-in to the government system. Is Putin attempting a similar strategy by creating a leak buy-in? I guess, Paul, if you could uh, address that initially, that would be great.
2: I, I think it 's already there, honestly. Uh, I think the the process of creating uh, and producing these these amendments actually demonstrates the extent of elite buy in others it wouldn 't have happened from my perspective at least uh, from the from my analysis if there wasn 't already elite buy in in the system and and what you saw in the process of the debates over these amendments was sort of a, a various elites following over themselves first to sort of riff on to replicate and extend the patriotic and social proposals initially made by Putin seeking his you know, um, approval where possible, you know, reining it in where he would occasionally sort of indicate his, his objections. Um, but ultimately, I mean, if we're gonna look at these reforms as something more than just a top-down imposition, then we have to accept the fact that there is a degree of what you know, uh, Green and Robinson referred to as the co-construction of authoritarianism. And that's not you know, just on the elite level, but it's also on the mass level too.
0: Sarah.
1: So I don't really see what Putin's doing as at all similar to what Gorbachev did in the 1980s, although I'm sure my other panelists will correct me if they have uh, different impressions, but um, Chris Miller and others have compared Putin uh, more actually to Brezhnev for the length of time and power and sort of the stagnating living conditions um, in, in terms of, you know, I don't, I, I don't see as Putin, uh, what he's doing and getting sort of elite buy-in it is a very top-down imposition, uh, and it's a continuation of these sort of unrealistic promises, and so, and it's not uh, any kind of opening up, it's in fact institutionalizing a formal power that will allow them to, uh, from their perspective, hopefully deal with any opposition very quickly and shut it down, because as Paul notes, you don't necessarily have to have a huge swath of the population on the streets for it to be a big problem. Um, and a huge number would be 10%. I, I, I mean, it could even be two, 3%, and that, that would be very problematic potentially. Um, yeah.
2: To be clear, I wasn't likening Putin to, to Gorbachev, but the, the, oh, no, the no. top-down process think of securing the where I was answering Biden. the question, not, not yeah, mm-hmm.
1: not, not disagreeing with your response at all, um, but just responding to the question.
0: Okay, our next question comes from Brian Taylor at Syracuse University. Uh, Kirill Rogoff has argued the recent protests have shown that Putin has not succeeded uh, with his goal in constitutional reform of not being a lame duck. Unlike in Central Asia, for example, there seems to be considerable social opposition to having a president for life. Does the panel agree or disagree with Rogoff? Did Putin solve the 2024 problem or not?
7: Nikolai. Uh, Thanks, Brian. I would certainly agree with Kirill Rogov, and it's, I think, the most interesting question now, and uh, it's a huge problem for Putin. That's why he uh, is postponing his uh, presidential address, uh, not for the first time. It's needed now for him to revise or to adopt the new strategy, uh, how to uh, make himself not a poisoned asset for elites, but uh, the base for stability of the whole system. And this is very important thing because we should understand that the constitutional reform is only part of the political transformation, which is aimed uh, to uh, let Putin to keep in power after 2024 not necessarily in his present uh, capacity of uh, the daily president but perhaps of uh, a monthly president, the one who uh, could keep control over the system but uh, who uh, could avoid of uh, being involved into uh, daily daily activities. And so far it was going on well until very recently when due to the political crisis caused by Navalny, a kind of Navalny gate, uh, Putin did start to lose his uh, popularity and uh, recently Uh, did show that although approval rating of Putin formally is almost the same as it used to be half a year ago, the level of trust to Putin uh, has declined from 32 to 29 percent and it's going down and the problem is that Navalny even if uh, staying in prison, uh, well, uh, did already damage Putin's legitimacy and this is huge risk for the whole system. So. I would compare the situation now with uh, the political crisis in 2011, 2012, which finally uh, has led uh, to the annexation of Crimea. So, and in my view, the uh, very adoption of this so-called Putin's constitution was initially planned as a kind of celebration, the final stage of this uh, glorious uh, way Uh, Russia past uh, being led by Putin starting from 2014. It did not play this role. And now we see that Putin is uh, back uh, to the position he was uh, prior to uh, Crimea, Uh, not in terms just of uh, figures but in terms of the fact that political crisis is going on and uh, there is no way out except for uh, something which should be invented by Putin.
0: Ivan.
6: Yeah, if, if I can jump in just very briefly. Um, I think that it might be that what Vladimir Putin was doing with the constitution is he was not solving as much the problem of 2024, but rather the problem of 2021 when the Duma elections will be held this September. And if you think about the timing of constitutional amendments, um, well, if it was about 2024, then it's a little too early unless the Duma elections are part of the picture. And I think this is how this question is connected to the previous two questions because it's not as much about the population, but rather about what Uh, all kinds of political elites on the regional level, uh, on the national level, are doing, and especially how they prepare for this very important Duma elections, which should be held this year. Uh, If Vladimir Putin would not have sent this signal that, you know, guys, we are thinking about 2024, I might stay, then it could have happened that the regime would start actually unraveling already in 2021 because... The political elites would have to start thinking about their loyalties in, you know, uh, in in the run-up to the Duma elections. So I think the answer to the question about whether the problem was solved is sh- should be positive, yeah. Except it was the 2021 problem that Putin was solving, and I think he, um, well, it remains to be seen, but he has certainly improved his position uh, in terms of what he'll get in September.
7: Well, could I please jump in mm-hmm. with a small remark? Uh, yes. <clears throat> I, I uh, first of all, uh, I would not agree uh, that uh, the constitutional reform uh, came too early. If to think in terms of twenty twenty-four, and here I am uh, fully supported by Putin himself. The problem is that you cannot construct uh, or change essentially the design of the political system just on the eve of uh, the uh, new presidential elections. You should construct new institutions, but this is not function of the Constitution only. You, uh, you should let these institutions to work. You should understand how the system uh, uh, is uh, capable uh, to, 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 to work after, after being changed. So in my view, Putin was planning to undertake all these changes Earlier and before only not uh, 2018 crisis with several defeats in regional elections, we would see the constitutional reform earlier. Now, if to speak about 2021, this is exactly uh, Rogoff's point that uh, the Kremlin now is much weaker uh, than it used to be, say, half a year ago, because half a year ago they did face certain potential problems connected with the smart, smart voting model. Uh, especially in Moscow and St. Petersburg, Saint in, uh, in single mandate races. But now they do face much more serious problem connected with the fact that uh, United Russia is going down. Not only Putin, but everything else because Putin is the base for the whole system. And if the United Russia will not let uh, the Kremlin to get to keep uh, its uh, majority uh, in the state Duma, then the whole transition uh, will uh, should be changed.
0: Okay. um next question um comes from uh, where did the question go.
4: Elena. Uh, well. Yes. Sorry, I, I put my hand up and I just have a quick comment to ben. make that relates Please to what, said, what, uh, what Ivan said. Thank you very much. Um, we shouldn't forget that at the moment United Russia has a supermajority in the State Duma, which means that when it comes to passing um, uh, constitu- federal constitutional laws and changes to the constitution, it's really easy. The State Duma will support the executive's agenda. Uh, now, that was possible because in 2016, United Russia's approval rating was much higher than it is now, but given the 2018 deeply unpopular pension reform, United Russia's approval rating at the moment is 30%, which puts the Kremlin in a much more difficult position and raises the possibility that United Russia might lose its supermajority in the September Duma elections, and then it makes it much trickier to pass all of the laws that Nikolai and I were looking at that are implementing the constitutional changes. That being said, I don't think we should get too carried away. If United Russia were to lose its supermajority or even its majority, it would be able to draw on the support, pro-executive support of other parties. And that's why we're seeing at the moment just Russia merging with other political parties. And it seems to be that the presidential administration is sinking lots of resources into supporting the party so it can be relied upon. And we might see a coalition scenario of a number of parties that will support the executive agenda. Uh, so I very much agree with Ivan that when talking about the constitutional changes, we shouldn't just be thinking about 2024. The 2024 problem and the succession problem, put differently, has not been solved. What Putin did in 2020 was just kick the can further down the road.
0: Thank you. Any other, anyone else want to comment on that? Okay, so I'm going to go to our next question from Elena Panamaryova. And she asks, I recall an article by Daniel Tressman calling Russia, Russia a normal country for its level of development. Apparently, Professor Gelman disagrees. That's my question. What is the proper level? What is the proper level of quality governments for Russia? Or according to Professor Gelman, any observable level of quality governments in a non-democratic state would be labeled not good enough. So, Ludima, I think uh, you get the first crack at
8: that. Uh, Yeah, actually, uh, uh, Dan Traisman and uh, Andrei Schleifer uh, uh, stated in 2004 uh, that uh, Russia faced uh, with uh, the same uh, problems uh, with its political system, uh, typical to uh, mid-developed countries uh, such as uh, Turkey, for example, and uh, this uh, statement uh, uh, supposed to be uh, very relevant. However, uh, when we uh, go to uh, quality of governance uh, uh, indicators uh, provided by the World Bank, uh, by uh, Transparency International, uh, uh, Rule of Law Index, and the like, we'll find out that uh, Russia, which uh, supposed to be uh, governed... Uh, nearly uh, on the same uh, level, uh, like uh, uh, countries of uh, Eastern Europe or Turkey, uh, somehow uh, governed uh, worse than uh, those of uh, African states, uh, which are uh, much less developed uh, than, uh, than Russia. Uh, and uh, uh, this is uh, the fundamental uh, problem for, uh, for the country. We should expect uh, much better uh, governance of Russia, not because uh, of uh, authoritarianism, uh, but rather because uh, some of the uh, uh, authoritarian states are uh, also uh, performing better, uh, better than Russia. And uh, uh, one of uh, the reasons uh, why it is so, uh, because uh, Russia's uh, political regime uh, provided uh, not uh, enough incentives for improving uh, quality governance, uh, which are uh, apparent uh, for uh, authoritarian states uh, like uh, uh, China or, uh, for example, uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is uh, 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 a fundamental problem for uh, personalist uh, authoritarian regimes, uh, which have uh, very uh, slim chances for uh, dynastic succession, uh, unlike monarchies, and uh, uh, have a very um, uh, weak uh, system of internal checks and balances, uh, like in. Uh, one-party regimes uh, such as uh, uh, in China or that uh, in uh, the Soviet Union. So uh, my uh, understanding that uh, uh, it's uh, not because of uh, authoritarianism uh, as such, but uh, rather because of, uh, a particular form of authoritarianism uh, dominated uh, in Russia. There we go.
0: OK, sorry about that. Uh, the next question comes from Marjorie Malnusson-Balzer from Georgetown University. Uh, it's a question for the panel, but especially Nikolai Petrov. Could you comment on the baked-in status of the leadership of the Russian people and culture in the Constitution? What has been the resonance of this? Sorry, will
7: could you please repeat
0: it, one time. Not... Yes. Um, The question is, could you comment on the baked in status of the leadership of the Russian people and culture in the Constitution? What has been the resonance of this?
7: Uh, Well, I I, I think uh, that uh, those amendments which are connected with special status of uh, Russian uh, people and of Russian language uh, well came as uh, the needed element uh, to provide for a bigger majority in support of uh, the uh, constitutional changes. And if to look at how exactly everything has been accepted by Russian nationalists, I would say that uh, not only uh, other nations uh, except for Russians uh, did feel uh, badly with regard to these changes, but Russian nationalists did feel badly as well. And that's the problem in order to, uh, well, uh, uh, to be placed by uh, certain groups, but being limited by all other groups, the Kremlin could not uh, go too far. And uh, in general, the result was negative, I would say, uh, for both Russians and non-Russians. So in my view, it did not change a lot the essence of the system and the balance between different ethnic groups in Russia, but it did aggravate both uh, Russians and non-Russians.
0: Just to follow up on that question as well, one of the important amendments that we haven't discussed is the question of the Russian language and the state-forming people, the Russian state-forming people, uh, because indeed they did emphasize uh, the uh, per, or, or the influence of Russians in this national uh, multinational empire, and uh, there was a discussion during the the working groups about whether they should actually change the preamble of the constitution and to insert language about just the Ruski, the Ruski people, and 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 the F, the emphasis on, on on the Russians, and ultimately they did not want to change the preamble because the preamble referred to the multinational people of the Russian Federation. And many people on the working group, uh, especially some representatives from Tardistan said that it would just, why why open up this Pandora's box? Why actually insert this amendment? Um, Because the rest of the constitution talks about the multinational people. And as, as the source of sovereignty in the Russian Constitution. So there, there was a debate or a side debate about what to do about the emphasis on Russia, on um, there, as ever, there was discussion about kind of referring to the victory of World War II in the preamble and so forth. Uh, and they ultimately decided not to do that. But again, they stuck those uh, changes in, in the Constitution. Uh, after chapters one and two. So again, that kind of highlights the contradictions that have been introduced into the Constitution because before um, they, they, they couldn't change chapters one and two, but they were allowed to introduce the amendments uh, later. And that gives us the Constitution more of a slapdash, from my perspective, feel to it. Um, let me get to the next question. Um, well, could I just jump in there real quick if you don't mind? Please want do. To? Yes.
2: Thanks. I, I just wanted to add a couple of things that I think probably would build upon the very important points that you've just raised. One is that in those debates, you know, about things like whether or not to include mention of the Ruski, you know, not only the as the state bearing people, that it was you know the main systemic parties that were making the proposals that really pushed a lot further than what was ultimately sort of discussed in the working group and then finally adopted. And so there was really a moderation of views. Um, and what was ultimately produced in the final document, but what came out was still, you know, uh, were things that have already been a, discussed, for instance, in previous drafts of the federal nationalities policy concept. Um, and so these aren't new ideas either. They have been active, they've been persistent, they've manifested in different ways. It's unclear why these need to go in the Constitution, like many of the other reforms that there are pl- ample ways that these could be pursued through federal legislation, for instance, without Baking it into the constitution, as we've as we've come to say, um, the prohibition on detaching territory from Russia was one aspect that was uh, uh, promoted by one of the members of the working group, um, and apparently was claimed had, that had produced a great resonance um, and became sort of a prominent or a court or a keystone feature of these uh, social patriotic amendments. Um, but then, you know, while the preamble wasn't changed the the idea of the respect for memory of defenders of the fatherland and a prohibition on demeaning of the demeaning their memory was adopted ultimately into the amendments, um, as well as you know making Russian the state language in all the territories, and one last thing to to mention about minority peoples, while minority ethnic peoples' rights are recognized, um, bear in mind that Russia also in the same packet of reforms is not bound by treaties and law that conflict with the Constitution. Um, and so while they're recognized domestically, that doesn't mean that international concerns about minority ethnic rights would be recognized domestically within Russia. Um, and that was also a principal source of concern amongst minority ethnic peoples um, within Russia with regards to these, uh, to these reforms. So there has been some subtle. Um, changes, things that I think have been present for some time, especially in the elite discourses, um, but things which also have potentially substantially weakened uh, sources of, of, of opposition and sources of rights um, uh, for uh, the non-Russian, non-ethnic Russian peoples within Russia.
0: That's a good point. And Yvonne, maybe you can just talk about the changes to the constitutional court and the attitude of the, the status of the constitution vis-a-vis International court decisions.
6: Uh, yeah, well, there has been thanks for this question. There has been a long debate about how the um, how the how the Russian Constitutional Court would deal with with situations when international tribunals are taking decisions which kind of override the decisions of the Russian Constitutional Court, and and this debate has drawn additional attention. Last year, when a specific mention has been introduced to the constitution, to the effect that, um, um, sorry, I cannot figure the specific, the exact wording that they have there, but basically, the way people read it was that Russia would not always uh, respect its international obligations, especially in the cases when those obligations go against uh, its constitutional provisions. Uh, But but again, that's one of those things that does not come, that's, there's nothing new about it. It's actually the first discussion of whether something like that should have been written either in the constitutional or the Russian Constitutional Court Act uh, was in 2010 or even 2009, if I'm not mistaken. So these ideas were somewhere in the air. And then, you know, when this conservative moment came to just write everything that that people have thought about the constitution into the constitution, they they just did, right? So um, yeah, th- th- that's pretty much it. Yeah, great.
0: Um, the next question comes from Paul Fisher from Four New Square, and the question is: the zeroing amendment is of course important, but what of the long term view of the pa- of the panel of the removal of the word consecutive? on Article 81.3 uh, of the Constitution. Is it meaningful and significant constitutional comm- pre-commitment uh, for every successive president that is not Putin or Medvedev? Anyone want to talk, talk about the changes, about the consecutive terms that that amendment? Uh, we'll go to Nikolai and then y- Yvonne.
7: I do think that the initial goal uh, was to avoid Medvedev's uh, well plans uh, to be the uh, president for longer than one term, but when Valentina Tereshkova came with uh, zero in presidential terms, it uh, did lose this sense and uh, it doesn't uh, make any difference because <clears throat> as it was easy for Putin to change, the constitution it will be easy for any other president and the Kremlin does not plan uh, that far from now.
6: Ivan. Yeah, well, the important uh, element here to keep in mind is that these amendments were introduced at different times. So the drop in the word consecutive amendment was introduced in January and at this moment people thought all right apparently uh, Vladimir Putin is not going to run apparently he will only allow Medvedev to run for this one term in 2024 so there was all kind of speculation but then indeed just as Nikolai said in in March 2021 they have just dropped pretty much everything else when they just you know uh, allowed all of the all of the previous presidents to to run for for two more terms Medvedev Putin
4: uh so yeah Ben. And I think it could be as simple as it also allowed um, the Kremlin to sustain the narrative that the was an element to the change that was limiting presidential power, that they were reducing the possibility uh, in the future, even though they say, but it's not gonna apply to Putin because we're gonna zero his presidential record. And certainly, you know, this is the complexity of the constitutional reform and the choice selection of certain elements by the authorities to highlight them in a way that actually isn't faithful to other changes in it. So uh, they can say, well, look, we're removing consecutive. uh, So that might be a plus for the um, uh, people who wanted uh, a liberalizing change in the constitution um, more broadly, uh, and so it could just be a, a question of, uh, of spin and rhetoric. We also shouldn't forget that I think there was lots of improvisation along the way. It's not as if there was always a plan for all of this. We saw thinking evolve, uh, we saw thinking change over time, and part of that could be in response to the elites changing thinking uh, about constitutional reform, but as well as the uh, population's response to these changes. We know that the Kremlin constantly is polling and has uh, access to polls that aren't just the Levada polls that we see. And so they would tailor the changes that they were making in response to whether proposed changes went down well. Um, I, I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. It's not as if there was a, a master plan from the 15th of January, uh, and within the Kremlin, they knew exactly what was going to happen. No, they responded shifting conditions.
0: Fabian.
5: Yeah. Um... I mean, one probably more general remark about uh, the provision on term limits, I think what is uh, important to remember that we have seen a long term process of the erosion of the norm of term limits. So just to go back, I mean, it, it has started with uh, the, uh, the, the, the hustling uh, between 2008 and 2012. We also should remember that it was Medvedev in 2008 who actually extended the presidential term from four to six years, which is also considered by scholars a form actually of, of, of basically a soft form of weakening the constraints of the of the term limits. And, and uh, I think the and as even mentioned, it was not introduced basically the, the zero in the, in the in the January bill, but rather uh, introduced later. Um, so we have seen basically a very slow and um, um, erosion of this norm of, of term limits in the, basically um, in the in the constitutional framework and i think uh, this is due to the fact and also basically the whole context that didn't just see like one amendment doing away with term limits altogether but basically embedding this the convention of term limits in a very comprehensive form and i think the reasoning is really is uh, i would see it as a sort of a a risk hedging strategy, because we know also from from surveys, uh, Paul Jacek has done a really interesting surveys on this issue. We know that uh, basically doing away with term limits is risky. It sends a clear signal to the elite. So, but, but uh, all about Putin actually wants is basically sending clear signals what actually his what actually his plans are. And it's also a clear signal to the population. We know that basically um, opposition to to doing away with term limits is uh, is associated with higher uh, propensity, like actually, in, in, in protest, it's very slow erosion of the norm of term limits. Basically, it's, is a I think a very conscious uh, strategy of, of dealing with risks that are associated with engagement uh, of of persons who and uh, basically regime, you know, not prolongation.
0: Okay, we're coming to the end of our question period, but several people have asked, it, asked the question uh, Will this Constitution outlast Putin? So, any, any thoughts or comments about that? Vladimir.
8: Yeah, uh, uh, I don't know about uh, well, uh, physical uh, uh, time horizon uh, for uh, Putin, uh, but my understanding is that uh, if uh, and when Uh, Putin uh, will uh, uh, no longer be a Russian president, Uh, either he will uh, uh, be dead or he will be overthrown uh, or uh, he'll step down uh, in one way or another. Uh, uh, The new Russian rulers uh, will uh, probably faced with the need of uh, making of a new constitution. And uh, 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 the very, uh, uh, mechanism uh, of power which is overly uh, personalised and overly centralised uh, is uh, highly unlikely to uh, uh, to continue over uh, uh, next uh, generations of rulers, uh, especially uh, given uh, given the uh, fact that uh, there are uh, low chances uh, for uh, dynastic succession. Uh, in regimes like uh, those in Russia, this is uh, not a uh, monarchy like uh, uh, like uh, uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, not uh, 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 a party-based uh, mechanism uh, of power. Uh, this is why I would expect that uh, uh, new rulers will uh, need uh, to uh, uh, to um, Uh, Adopt a new constitution, but uh, it's too early uh, to speak uh, uh, what what exactly will be changed and in which uh, which ways. Uh, uh, But uh, I doubt that uh, it will be uh, the same constitution in 100 years from now.
1: Sarah. So I, I think, as Vladimir said, that it's it's too early for us to really know or, or be able to answer it. I think that's absolutely right. But I, I would be shocked if they completely scrapped the Constitution and started from scratch. I can see scenarios where you could have um, some kind of transition in power, new leaders come in, and you could have further uh, amendments and adjustments. But I I would be surprised, at least, if we saw it completely scrapped. But I I think what Vladimir said is actually the most accurate answer. A hundred years from now, we're not likely to see the same constitution in place. But it's much too early to really know how a subsequent leader would would adjust it. But I would be shocked if they fully scrapped it.
0: Quick quick answers, because I think lots of people want to chime in here at the end. Yvonne. Ivan, then Nikolai.
6: Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, well, just from the historical perspective, um, notice that Vladimir Putin did not adopt a new constitution, right? He amended the old one, the one adopted in 1993. And moreover, the constitution adopted in 1993 was not adopted immediately after the new political regime was established in Russia. So again, it took two years for the, for the elites, you know, to... To brew the new constitution there. Uh, and, and it's not that easy to adopt constitutions. So for instance, in Russia, you need to have approval from even to amend the constitution, you need to have approval from all of the regions, right? Russia is a federation. So there is a very strong element of stability to constitution in Russia. And I'm not sure it would be that easy to, to even amend it significantly, let alone adopt a new one. Nikolai.
7: I would say something which is bad for constitutionalists. Uh, I am not constitutionalist at all. So I would say that constitution is not that important in Russia. And uh, it's clearly seen it was possible for Putin to leave uh, while having Yeltsin's constitution. It's flexible enough. The new constitution in my view is even more flexible than the previous one. So any ruler can easily adjust, can easily violate the constitution in a way he wants. So in my view, the problem uh, is connected only with the fact how Putin uh, will go out. If he's overthrown, then we cannot exclude the possibility to uh, decide that the old constitution should be restored and that's all. If not, then the new one can be easily adjusted to any new rule.
0: Regina and Paul have want the right way in here. So Regina, then Paul.
3: So I wanna agree with Nikolai that the constitution itself was not that important but changing the constitution was important in very significant ways. And I think one way it was important is that it changed people's expectations about their orientation to the state. So it would be very hard for example to take away social benefits now or to take away those promises. But I also think one thing that struck me watching uh, live feeds of the last protest was for the first time, the interviews with people on the street were talking a lot about rights. So talking about the constitution also increased people's perceptions or um, of their rights and even their political and civil rights, even though that wasn't the focus of this change. So we've seen an increase in the salience of rights protections that makes me think that this exercise didn't quite go as planned.
2: Uh, Paul? Yeah, just quickly, uh, I wanted to say that um, if we think about the sources of continuity, potential sources of continuity after Putin, um, the system, of course, isn't really designed to manage a post-Putin era. Um, at present. Uh, but I think there is a crucial difference between now and, say, if we look at the previous you know, era um, in the early 1990s, the, uh, between the late Soviet era and the early 1990s, and that unlike that time, there are now organized political parties. There are now organized political interests that exist in a way that have social foundations, they have organizations, they have resources in a way that they did not, um, say, in the, in the constitutional interim period between 1991 and 1993. And those... Organized interests, are interested parties, they have it. They have vested interests in various elements of the constitution. So I would expect that that would persist. I think also, if we think about legitimation after Putin, another crucial difference, of course, is the last three decades of Russia's existence as a sovereign, independent state, um, and the constitution is a core or a key symbol of that. And I think that that is also something that would likely lead to its preservation in some form, although it may well be you know continually amended until it suits the purposes of of whoever might possibly succeed um, at, in that, at, that, at that point in time.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, we're going to bring the conversation to a close. Um, I will just close by saying that Russia had seven constitutions in the 20th century. Uh, and uh, we can debate whether Putin represents another constitution, the first constitution of the 21st century. Uh, but the permanence of Russian constitutionalism uh, Has always been called in question, and I have no doubt that uh, at an appropriate time there will be another constitution or another constitutional debate. I want to thank all our panelists for uh, tuning in and for all your contributions. Another reminder that you can find the articles that are the subject of this uh, discussion uh, in an upcoming issue of Russian Politics, um, the, the journal. So. Thank you all for your participation. Thank you for your questions. And we look forward to seeing you at future Kennan Institute events. Thanks very much.